Today, we dive deep into the work of Clay Christensen. We discuss his book, The Innovator's Dilemma, and how it should be applied to business. We talk about the three types of innovation, sustaining, efficiency, and disruptive, and about how I've disrupted the immigration services market with the power of free. You're listening to Digital Bacon FM. It's Friday. That means we joined on air by our marketing maestro and all-round good guy, Stephen Barnes. How are you? Same way, Monsieur Black. I'm fine. Thank you. Wow. What's happening? Besides, of course, you getting ready to go to England. It's Chinese New Year. It's a day off today. It's uh, deadly quiet. Can you... Uh... Can you hear the uh, uh, void of the cacophony? No uh, this, construction uh, today. Absolutely, no, what a pleasure. Today. So, what's happening in the world? Uh, well, I thought we'd talk about Claire Christensen today. If that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I was having a little bit of a read on him earlier. Um, yeah, seems to have been yeah. quite a disruptive, innovative chap, so to speak. Well, he's a professor. Professor of business at uh, Harvard Business School. Plus, he has been a successful entrepreneur in his own right. He's um, he, he basically uh, has contributed to the world of, of um, sort of business innovation, if you will, mm. since 1997 when he wrote a book called The uh, 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 Disruptors. So, The Innovator's Dilemma. Mm. Um, uh, and basically, in The Innovator's Dilemma, he kind of explained why. Um, uh, existing businesses uh, will never be in a position to disrupt themselves to keep up with the concept of disruptive innovation, which he enunciated in his book, The uh, Innovator's Dilemma. So, because incumbent, well, yeah, because incumbent businesses, they uh, they'll not disrupt a um, a proven success formula. It's just the uh, psychology of where you are in business so that when uh, disruption inevitably occurs, uh, it always comes and sort of slaps you around the head and you didn't see it coming. So if you take a company like Apple, for example, they potted about and potted about and did okay and then they invented the iPod and they completely disrupted everything. So how, how would that apply in this case? Well, they, they created new markets, right? Steve Jobs was uh, looking at the um, stuff that they did, the, the markets that they were in for the first time from the perspective of the consumer rather than from the product, from the producing entity. Mm. Um, Steve Jobs always said that you should begin with the consumer and work out from that. And essentially, that's how uh, Apple went on to disrupt all, well, every manner of, uh, of sort of human activity, really, in their own mm. way. Okay. And would these yeah. be the principles that um, Christensen was espousing, or is it slightly different? No, I, well, it's not principles in espousing. He offers explanations to why things are okay, and he says that you know, in businesses, basically, there are three types of innovation. There's something called a sustaining innovation, another something called an efficiency innovation, and thirdly, a disruptive innovation. Hmm. Um, and a sustaining innovation is where if you're an existing business, um, uh, you have to look for growth. And the way that you look for growth is 
basically to develop new products or make improvements on your existing products. Mm. The problem with uh, sustaining innovation is that ultimately it's not an engine of growth because if you bought this year's product, you're not going to buy next year's product, right? You're not going to um, uh, be buying stuff as frequently as that. So uh, sustaining innovations when businesses are looking to kind of progress themselves forward with the product offerings, uh, basically end up with these no growth initiatives, which are basically sustaining innovation. So, so Claire Christensen identified that. And then he identified another um, type of innovation, which he, he counts as an efficiency innovation. That's basically where as an existing business, what you do is you find cheaper ways or faster ways to do the same thing uh, and you get efficiencies that way. Um, so that, 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 you know, those two types of innovations tend to represent the kind of, you know, the lot uh, of the incumbent uh, provider of a product or a service because uh, that's their proven formula for success. Mm. Um, the problem, the problem there is in that, uh, if there's some new innovative sort of angle to what you do, the question is, how does that new innovative angle sort of wheedle its way into the business? Uh, well, Craig Christensen identifies um, this notion of coming in with your cheaper product that, that looks less glamorous than what's in the marketplace, but actually is configured or designed to serve a particular small market niche um, where basically there's a need for that kind of stuff. But uh, the, the market is presently being ignored by the major competitors. So, so if you've got something disruptive and a new way of coming into, uh, you know, um, serving a, a certain proposition, you can come in and compete against non-consumption, uh, working on the grounds that the um, major competitors have seeded because they just don't think it's worth their while. And by going in with that disruptive innovation in that small way first then you uh, basically gain a foothold and you're able to make changes in the market, the perceptions of you know, what the marketplace might be all about. And then in due course, you can uh, go after uh, the rest of the market uh, and thereby basically disrupting uh, from within mm. rather than from without. So, so the innovator's dilemma, which was written in 1997, sort of got me thinking about how I in my business could apply those notions and, um, uh, and seek to benefit from it because uh, I had the uh, privilege of uh, sort of inside information of my two major competitors, having been a founding partner of one of them. Uh, and uh, the other one I had um, basically spent two and a half years sort of consulting to at the, at the highest level. So I had insights in what they were all about. So I decided and understood that if I was going to come back into the Hong Kong immigration marketplace, I should uh, provide, seek to provide information and answers to problems that a certain type of a certain segment of the foreign national community here experience, which is the individual immigration services space. Mm. The big, the, my big competitors were basically competing for the corporate immigration services space in the main, which is 85% of the market by value. Mm. But 15% of the market by value is the individual immigration services space. And there's three or four types of people in, uh, in Hong Kong that uh, in, 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 inevitably need to have access to immigration information because because they're not able to get that anywhere else. And by providing access to the immigration information, in my case, to that particular se uh, subsection of the market, which is only 15% of the market by value, I was then able to create relationships and then go on to 
know, consolidate myself in the individual immigration services space and become sort of the go-to resource for anything to do with Hong Kong immigration and then and then kick on from that through the uh, build-out of a new uh, different service proposition that we have for the corporate immigration services space, which is being built as we speak, Hong Kong Visa Sherpa.com. Mm. Um, and that's where we're going to disrupt the corporate immigration services space, so finally accessing sort of 85% of the market. Uh, that's the corporate slice at present that we haven't really been able to make any inroads into because all those relationships were controlled by the big major incumbents. Now, so that whole notion of sorry, yeah, the whole notion of, in, of, of disruptive innovation is how it's played out in, in the Hong Kong immigration business. Now, if you've established a monopoly in the 15%, that sort of single operator visa kind of business, um, does the business model that you've created in terms of disrupting that market, will you then be able to roll that out in the 85% um, portion? Well, well, that's the, that's the point that I was just making. The Hong Kong visa Sherpa.com initiative is, uh, is our um, new corporate offering. When we're building that website now and we'll be launching that service in a, a few short weeks, in fact. Mm. So, yeah, we've, uh, we've, we've established our foothold in the individual immigration services space. And while we were consolidating ourselves in that position, um, we then basically were able to turn our attention to the corporate immigration services space and then use the same sorts of concepts and ideas mm -hmm. uh, to disrupt the market in the corporate space well, that, that's, that as was, we applied in the individual immigration services space. Th that's what I was getting to. I mean, your your big slogan is is free and the power of free and giving people the opportunity to be able to do this working with your IP. Would that then still apply in the corporate uh, space? Yeah, very much so, but with a slight twist on it, because in the individual immigration services space, basically what we are selling to our individual immigration customers is peace of mind. Mm. Uh, in the corporate immigration services space, in the main, uh, you're not selling peace of mind, you're selling the ability to blame us if something uh, goes wrong. So we can, understanding that dynamic, we can produce a content proposition that allows uh, companies to gain real value out of our organizational methodologies and the uh, resources that you get to be able to um, complete an immigration application if you're a, uh, in the corporate environment. We can provide that, that, that information so that uh, they can use our resources for free to pull the case together basically to the point where they've got the potential to hand over to us uh, for value exchange, what I mean by that is they could work up a case by themselves and then send it, send it to us uh, and then we look at it and then we confirm that it's all in good order uh, and then sign off uh, and basically agree that uh, we take the responsibility uh, for that case being approved because it's in good order to be submitted. Yeah. So we can sell that kind of service which is presently unavailable in the marketplace today. You, you said something rather unique there. You said you give businesses the opportunity to blame you. What did you mean? Yeah. Well, okay. So if you're, you know, if you're working in a, in a company and to to access this Hong Kong Visa Sherpa service, you need to have a business that's got more than a hundred employees. But if you're working inside a, a typical industrial economy business uh, and you've been given, you know the job or you're involved in the chain of responsibility for this did the deployment of this particular individual in my instance to Hong Kong to come about mm. 
then if for some reason or another that doesn't come about due to immigration, then whoever's, whoever's in the decision-making chain is ultimately going to look for somebody to blame for this. Right. So where does the handoff where does the handoff go? So mm. so the handoff goes onto our shoulders because we're the immigration experts and we said it was going to get approved, but unfortunately it hasn't been approved. Mm. So, you know, in that regard, they're ultimately paying for us, playing to blame us if something goes wrong. Sure. But but the reality is they're really um paying an expert because the assumption is that it's not going to go wrong and you're really solving people's problems so it doesn't have to be handled internally. Mm. Exactly, but but ultimately, we know that we are selling that phenomenon. That is the ability to blame as if something goes wrong, and so our entire proposition is set up to, in a sense, allow them to take comfort in the fact that you know ultimately they'll be able to blame as if something goes wrong, and, and their careers won't be compromised by any of this. So now, is, is Sherpa aimed at middle management or top management? Who would be the person in the near, or, or which strata would you find the person who would engage with? Sherpa. Well, you see, this is this is part of the trick, right? What you have to do is you've got to, you've got to, you've got to produce content that speaks to in certain actors that are involved in the decision making chain mm -hmm. uh, in the in the in the in the internal purchase of a immigration service from an external provider. So these are the uh, the CFO. And the CFO is interested in uh, value for money and efficiency uh, and, and best practice. Uh, then you've got the HR director who's interested in the deployability of this particular talent in question because, you know, they're, they're ultimately responsible for uh, getting this, 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 this new talent deployed uh, in, the, in their business in Hong Kong. Uh, then you've got the actual poor Joe inside the company we call the staffer, whose job it is to actually do the paperwork. Uh, and go about, you know, submitting the application and uh, managing it through to its practical conclusion. And then you've got the uh, applicant and the family uh, who uh, are also uh, parties, obviously, to this uh, to this situation inside the company. So it's to the applicant and the family that we're ultimately selling peace of mind because what they're interested in is, is is getting the visa so that they can start their new lives in Hong Kong. Mm. But for, for the other three parties, ultimately what it's all about is if there's a problem that goes wrong, do they have the ability to point the finger at somebody uh, and, uh, and ultimately, you know, find uh, find somebody blameworthy for it? And uh, ultimately, when you're buying an immigration service in the corporate setting, uh, that's ultimately what you're buying. So now, if you if you had to use these principles and you uh, applied them to a different kind of business, uh, and you wanted to create content that was going to parallel what you are doing with Sherpa, pick a, pick a business and see if you can find another way. Uh, of making it applicable, if if it was F and B, for example, or small manufacturing. Well, here you go. You see, I think I think that uh, uh, that's what's so interesting about these ideas. Um, you see, I'm not sure that I can do this because in order for me to be successful, I would need to really understand the business that I was trying to get. You know, to get an insight on, right, through practical experience, or, or just having studied it, or just you know, being being in that space. If you're in that space, you've then got an opportunity to understand what your customer is going to feel like. Okay. Um. So, so that's the starting point. Okay. Well, so let, once let, you understand what your customer feels like, then 
the general ideas of, of what we've done, which I've called intelligent content marketing, those, those general ideas can then be brought to bear into your situation and your understanding of, uh, of the customer. And, and then knowing your space and your niche in the way that you do, you can then build a proposition uh, uh, sort of uh, out, uh, on top of that mm. that, that follows the, the, the kind of ideas that, that, that we've applied in our instance. We believe that what we're doing is, 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 is universally applicable mm. in certain niches. Uh, not um, this is not cookie cutter. It's not a it's not a franchise, if you will. It's you know one size fits all. Mm. It's a collection of ideas that that you can come and uh, ultimately apply as an as a connection economy business model. Okay, that so works. Let, let's let's use my industry expertise then um, and see how you would apply your your principles to what I would give you as an example. I have a restaurant A. I want to. Um, now go out and do corporate catering uh, to uh, executives. I want to sell the proposition of quality, but I know that the MD is less interested in how much it costs and the, the, all of the mechanics of making it work. He just wants to know that if he is entertaining, he shouldn't have to worry. So we take, he has the fear factor. But he passes the responsibility on to lower level staff to make the booking, ensure the menus are done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if I wanted to create um, some online um, blogs or, or however I wanted to communicate this, how would I do that? Well, okay. You see, this is, this is the point, exactly the point that I'm trying to make to you, Jason. You see… Because I don't know the customer, I can't put myself in the shoes of that customer, irrespective of how you've described your understanding of the mechanics of the marketplace. Mm. What I can say to you is, like, as a customer myself, if I were thinking about, um, you know, if I was going to develop some sort of food and beverage proposition of my own mm. today, given that I had, you know, something really special to be selling rather than, you know, sort of thinking about it being a general restaurant experience, it was there was just something that there was, like, like, let's say, you know, my grandmother's barbecue ribs, right? I build a whole story around my grandmother's barbecue ribs. And, and I'd, I'd have the entire experience around my grandmother's barbecue ribs. And then I'd apply ideas like, what, what, what would grandmother's hospitality look like? Mm. And then I'd come up with, with online and online initiatives that, 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 uh, that, that sort of propagate those kind of hospitality initiatives. And I then, I then try to build a tribe, a mini tribe around this experience about my grandmother's barbecue ribs. Now, now because I'm not an F&B expert, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, probably never want to do that kind of business because you know i think you've got to stick to your knitting mm. but but just generally thinking about you know how you would take connection economy dynamics uh, and apply them to your proposition that that's 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 how i would mm. you know begin to sort of approach that sort of thing and there there you can see it ultimately begins with your customer and and, and then what it is that you're going to sell them okay so if we use if we use the example of uh Barney's Barbecue by Granny um, and then say, okay, uh, what you've said to me before is people approach the internet with a question and they will put that question into Google, for example, to find an answer. Now, your proposition has always been to create content which gives answers to people's questions. Using that then, how would you tailor content 
um, to answer those questions on Granny's well, you barbecue. Well, can't. You, no, you see, you, ca you can't. You can't. So, so what I'm what I'm um, suggesting as part of the intelligent content marketing approach is to understand what the internet is all about as a communication medium. Mm. And if you understand, if you understand that it's the communication medium that that's at your disposal to communicate whatever it is that you feel that you need to communicate in the way that you have to communicate in order to, you know, to to communicate the proposition. Mm. That, you know, you've got you've got the means to do that. So it might well be, uh, in this instance, knowing that that people are not going to be, you know, going to to, uh, to to Google to look for the proposition that I've got. What I what I'd have is, you know, I, I tend to want to hang out whatever my content proposition was to parlay that whole idea and that whole experience. Um, I'd, uh, I'd I'd just develop the messaging and make sure that on a pay-to-play basis I was appearing where I needed to appear, mm. and then I'd make sure that once I'd gotten people's attention uh, through that pay-to-play initiative, whatever was coming up, you know, after that was was definitely going to be of value to them, and it would give me the opportunity to 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 generate a you know an interested tribe around that, and then build a sort of a mini movement around it. Mm. That that's the sort of approach that uh, you know I would take, and that's how I go about communicating, knowing that you can't produce content and just expect you know that experience to appear on search because no one's searching for those questions. Mm. Now we we speak about products and innovation. What about things that are simple, like just the basic consumables that everybody has or, or needs? Uh, how does one disrupt that market, or is that just not in play? Well, I don't. I don't think it's in play. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you know, we're seeing some very disruptive things coming along in the way that Amazon uh, distributes and uh, you know the physical movement of goods and what have you. Uh, being able to sort of walk into an Amazon store and, and and sort of walk out with your equipment and all that kind of with it stuff that you bought and, and all that kind of good stuff. I think you know there's there's this disruption going on all around us right right now you know that you can see and that even though technology is, is clearly going to you know improve to uh, cover all aspects of lives there's still going to be a need to walk across the road to a 7-eleven at 11:30 uh, in the evening because you run out of sugar right mm. now i heard um, an interesting story a few years back and i don't know if it was an urban legend or not but you know that brand crocs um, oh yes, yes, yes. The plastic. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Got them. Yeah. Now apparently they had to rethink what they were doing, and again, this may just be an urban legend, but they were building them so they didn't bloody uh, wear down, uh, and obviously that's not a sustainable business model if you buy one pair and they last forever. Um, uh, have you heard that or not? Yeah. No. Well. Well. Uh, no, I hadn't, but it makes sense. Uh, but but I think the counter argument to that would be, I suppose, that um, you don't want to have one pair that's going to uh, last you forever. But you want to change them every season, right? Because it's a fashion thing. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah. I suppose some would argue that Crocs were a fashionable, a fashionable going to thing. Be um, back in Hong Kong. Are you available next Friday? Uh, uh, yes, I am, but I'll be broadcasting live from the United Kingdom. Fantastic. Well, let's have a catch-up next week. Have a great flight and uh, look forward to chatting you then. Digital Bacon FM. Now that you know about the types of innovation and how to tailor your content to answer questions, go forth and disrupt your niche market. But join us in the next episode dedicated to figuring out how to become a linchpin. Mm -hmm.